So, um, as I said, this is what do it once a year called the massive questions where people are just write in what questions they have. So, um, first question is, since the Bible is written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and all translations are not literal, why do so many Christians focus on the literal interpretation? The problem is, like, when normal people speak, we use a mixture of literal, figurative, you know, that's how human beings speak. So um, the Catholic Church um, doesn't interpret things just literally. Uh, we'd say, you know, there's three levels, literal, symbolic, and uh, contemplative. So the problem is, is that the Bible, I, you know, you couldn't interpret the Bible literally because 50% of the Bible is poetry. How would you interpret poetry literally? You can't. Um, and that's not including like allegories and all that other stuff. Or when Jesus teaches, he teaches in parables. And they say, why do you teach us in parables? And Jesus basically says, because I want you to think about it. You can't interpret a, a parable literally. So um, that just doesn't make any sense. And um, this sounds kind of strange. Like atheists love to mock religion in the Bible by always interpreting it literally so that they can mock it, but we Christians never interpret it just literally. Now, often fundamentalists, uh, evangelicals, say they interpret the Bible literally, but as I said, that's impossible. Have you guys ever seen the movie? It's a great movie, a theological movie called um, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, in it, there's a character named Drax. Do you guys know the character Drax? Honestly, you guys don't know Drax. Um, he's kind of one of my favorites, but Drax can, can only interpret things literally. So he's often missing the point of every conversation. And the point being is any Christian who says, I interpret the Bible literally, you're Drax. You're missing most of it. Um, and what are you saying? There can't be truth in poetry? Uh, we'd say the Bible is all true, but um, we'd say there's many ways of interpreting it. Plus, we'd say uh, you have to interpret it symbolically and you have to interpret some parts literally. In Greek, the New Testament written in Greek, is very sophisticated, more sophisticated than English. And in Greek, if I want to say something that you can only interpret literally, there's a way of doing that. So Jesus, when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, when he says about the Eucharist, do this in memory of me, that's an emphatic, uh, literal statement that there's only one way you can interpret that. You must do this. Um, so we'd say as Catholics, well, there's many ways. If you interpret the Bible just literally, it won't make, you won't get a lot of meaning out of it. So like take today's gospel about Peter walking on the water. Let me just explain it symbolically. So the first symbol is the boat. So here's a question. What do you call where you guys are sitting in Latin? What do you, what do you call it? Really, nobody knows, serious? It's called the nave. It's the same word you get, navy. Um, you're sitting in the boat. So Jesus in the gospel is always getting in and out of Peter's boat. So you're sitting in the boat and we are traveling to heaven. The sanctuary, that's heaven. I'm not gonna explain the whole thing. Uh, so, boat, heaven. 
So think about that. They're in the boat, um, and the wind and the waves, it's literally beating the boat. It's persecuting the boat. Believe it or not, the church was meant to be persecuted. So um, yeah, the boat is getting persecuted. Um, and Peter is commanded to step out of the boat. Now, just think about it. His name means rock. You're asking rock to... It doesn't sound well when rocks tries to step on water, right? Um, but he does with faith. Now, most of the time, Peter is pictured as a coward, because he is. But that's not the point of this gospel. The point of this gospel is Peter is brave. And think about what this is saying. You have this storm, and Peter is kind of amazing, because Peter is called out of the safety of the church, the boat, to walk on water. Uh, that's brave. And so um, Peter got out of the boat. Now, this sounds kind of strange. If the boat is a church, Peter, faith gets Peter in the boat. But once in the boat, the faith of the church allows him to step straight into violence, to walk straight into the problems and violence and all the, the anger of the world. The boat doesn't, this is, this is the main point. The boat is not supposed to keep you just safe right in here. The boat, your faith in the church, you're in the boat so you can gain faith so that you can head into the problems of the world. You don't hide in the boat. The rest of the apostles, God bless them, they're hunkered down in fear. You don't use a church to hide away from all the problems of the world. In the church is where you gain the bravery to face the problems of the world. And so think about this. Like, um, for the first 300 years of our religion, we were persecuted. When Jesus is crucified, he, yeah, he has the 12 apostles and he has about 150 other disciples. So from a little group of 150 plus 12, within a few years, even though they are constantly persecuted, uh, the church expands to millions in the Roman Empire and people were converted the way Christians had bravery. And so think about this. What happens when the, like a child is baptized? At the door of the church, before we bring the child into the church, what is the first thing we do to that child's heart? Really, have you guys never seen a baptism? Um, we anoint the child's heart for bravery. So think about this. If you're going to have faith, your faith is supposed to make you brave about the problems. If you hide in the church away from all the problems of the world, the church simply becomes a prison, not a place to hide away. Um, you are anointed for bravery. That's what your faith is, to do impossible things like walk on water, face the problems of the world. So think about this. If I just interpreted this gospel literally, all you would get is... Well, Peter walked on water. It says nothing about what you're supposed to do. The meaning is in the symbol. Or the first reading about the prophet. The prophet, at first, he thinks he knows God. And he is ticked off. He is angry at all the problems of the world. So he starts yelling and screaming at people. And you're going to burn in hell. And you're going to burn in hell. And don't you even start with you, Bob. Um, and then... He's depressed. He's so depressed. Anger and depression to me always go together. Um, he just wants to die. 
That's when God sends him an angel, gives him the bread of the angels, this bread from heaven that gives him such strength. He walks 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. So here's the question. Where's Mount Horeb? Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. One side of the mountain is called Sinai. The other side of the mountain is called Horeb. And the prophet, he thinks he knows God and he can chew people out. And he goes, and God is not in the firestorm. God is not in the earthquake. God is not in the wind. God is not in these destructive power. What it says is, he hears God in the silence. Uh, he hears God in silence. How can you hear the voice of God in silence if you interpret the Bible literally? So the Bible is not meant to be. So the point being about that whole thing, he thinks he knows God. And remember, one side of the mountain is Horeb, one side of the mountain is Sinai. The idea why there's two sides is this. You think you know God? Wait 20 years, and then you'll find a whole different side of God you've never known before. Um, that really, religion is not about anger, who to accuse. Maybe religion is teaching you this impossible thing of hearing God in silence. You have a lot more, learn to, learn, more to learn. If you interpret the Bible literally, that, that passage makes no sense. So for us, um, uh, we'd say, no, we interpret the certain parts literally, but you have to interpret it symbolically if you want the word of God to tell you where to go. Okay, so um, here's another question. If priests are taught to celebrate mass and teach as Jesus taught, how come some priests define what makes a good Catholic different from other priests when they all follow one Jesus. Well, that's really easy. Um, so just remember, hopefully you know this, um, it's called the hierarchy of truths. We get it from the Jews. So do you guys know what the hierarchy of tru truths are? Honest to God, it's like you don't pay attention when I'm preaching. Um, the hierarchy of truths is, um, there's four levels. There's dogma, doctrine, teachings, disciplines. Dogma, you must believe. That is everything Christ hand on to the apostles. We'd say you must believe that. That's very important. Doctrine is things we believe for 2,000 years, but technically Christ didn't demand it. So we'd say it's a should. And then the largest body is Catholic teaching. And that's opinion of popes and bishops. And that changes with every pope and bishop. But it's our best moral guess. In, Informed by theology, it's our best guess at this time period. The lowest level is called disciplines. That's like what color vestment to wear. We openly admit Christ doesn't even care about that. We care, so it's good order. So let's say, um, so that's just the beginning, but um, let's say, um, this sounds kind of strange. Every posture that we do in mass, it means something. So in the Bible, when you stand, you, you stand when you make a vow or you stand when you're talking to God. So um, when the gospel is read, you stand because you are making this promise to God. You'll put it into action. But think about this. What posture are you in right now? You're sitting, which means I'm not obligated. I'm only thinking about it. So this sounds kind of strange. You're not obligated. Whatever I say, you're not obligated to. It's just to inform you. But I may be completely wrong. So like, I know, luckily, like this sounds really bizarre. I, in my twenties, when I was a priest, so young, 
And you know me, I've always been very emphatic and intense about my opinions. But now that I'm 60 and a half, I look back at the 20-year-old and think, I don't believe that. You were wrong about that. You know, it's kind of shocking. And I kind of hope a lot of my parishioners might have forgotten what I said. Um, or like TJ, you know, he's just thinking of ice cream right now. So he's not even hearing anything. No offense. But like, uh, so like, I hope the wisdom of the Holy Spirit said, oh, just ignore that. Because think of it, that, that was wrong. Or I know this, these priests who gave this whole series that you should not, women especially, wear any sleeveless shirts to mass and never wear shorts to mass. So this, these couple priests are really hard on that. The problem is, is that dogma? Did Christ ever say that? Okay, for those who said no, you got it. Um, what about doctrine? Did doctrine after 2,000 years ever say anything about that? Yes. Except, think about this, in, because I know this, in the very early church, you have these monks and nuns, and they would wear tunics, because that's what Romans, so your knees were showing, that's like shorts, and um, sleeves were a sign of um, the upper class, but they took vows of obedience and work, so they would wear sleeveless garments, it's a sign that you're a worker, so think about this, in the early church, that's how you address so, wait a minute, in the early church, now you have this, these priests chewing these people out for the way they dress, but that is exactly how they would have dressed if you had taken orders in the early church. So, we'd say, that goes against doctrine. That's just his opinion. Does that make any sense? So, um, like, so yeah, it depends what the priest is talking about. If it's dogma, you must believe. If it's my opinion, it's our best guess. And, you should have the wisdom of having a hierarchy of truths to know immediately, and oh, that's just his opinion. Maybe when he turns 60, he'll change his opinion. Um, okay, next question. Why is there a claim that Christianity is the true religion because it's the longest when Native American religions and Judaism have lasted as long or longer? Well, it is true that the oldest inst human institution is actually the Catholic Church. Um, I won't explain, but in all honesty, uh, Judaism starts, rabbinical Judaism starts after Catholicism. Classical Judaism was based on the temple and the priests every Sabbath offering bread and wine. That hasn't happened in 2000 years. So technically we are the oldest, but it's not our age that makes us true. Um, it's not about the age. So. It's about dogma. And let me explain. It's like, I love studying like uh, Druids because I'm Irish. But you know, the Druids, they had no creed. They had no central creed. So like each, they had stories, but that each Druid priest would just come up with his own thing or, you know, you do your own thing. I love studying Native American spirituality, love it. But they have no creed. They have no, like say, by creed, no, None of those have dogmas where it's like, this we believe is revealed by God. What they just have is at best doctrine where each person can kind of tell a set of stories, but do their own thing. And so like love Native American spirituality. And I think there's some truth in there, but like the ghost dance, which is a way of celebrating. Do you know when the ghost dance was invented? Anybody? 
1889. So yeah, the spirituality may be old, but there's no central creed that you can say, this is from God or this part. Only Jews and Catholics say this never changes. Um, so we'd say that's different. And we'd say all religion is God speaking to us. Some, every religion has some ray of truth in it. That's why I like studying other religions. What we would say is that God spoke to us. So we'd say uh, we have the fullness of truth, not the exclusive truth. Um, so like this officially, this is a, our official position. The Catholic church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these other religions. She regards with sincere reverence those ways of conduct and of life. Nonetheless, they often reflect a ray of that truth that enlightens. But she proclaims Christ, the way, the truth, and the life always. So um, anyhow, so hopefully that explains it. Okay, I keep being told no, so there's a new question. I keep being told that people cannot truly be good unless they're Catholic. Let me tell you, I have never said that, so I don't know who heard that, but um, if that is true, then how can atheists make good decisions and good things? So, okay, so, um, you know, I, Christ said, and I gave a homily the church, the kingdom of God has weeds and wheat in it. It's a mix. We're not saying if you're Catholic, you're purely good and anybody who's not is not. We're a mix of weeds and wheat. And in the Bible, in the Bible, who does it say is the holiest person of all humanity? It's Job. And what's shocking about that, Job is not part of the uh, people of God. He's a pagan and yet he's the holiest. That should have shocked you. Or like later, St. Paul says, when they ask him, well, what about what about, you know, those people who will never hear Christ? You know, the pygmies in Africa, or God forbid the Canadians. You know, <laughs> kidding. Um, what, what chance do they have? And St. Peter says, no, no. The Holy Spirit can speak to them in their heart. They may not know the name Christ, but they said yes to the best of their ability to the Holy Spirit. Um, Thomas Aquinas says this, or we just had Catherine... Sorry, not Kevin. Uh, Edith Stein's um, feast day. Edith Stein was an atheist, kind of during World War II. She was an avowed atheist. Her, one of her friends dies, uh, sorry, one of her friend's husband dies. And just the way this woman handled her grief, it shocked her. And she starts to question her own beliefs. And the woman, the widow, gives her a book of uh, Teresa of Avila. She spends all night reading it. And... Um, she said, uh, I realize my longing for truth has been my single prayer my entire life, and it's answered in Christ. So think about this. Even as an atheist, uh, Edith Stein had this longing for Christ. She just didn't know it was Christ. So that's our position. Um, okay, so uh, another one. Uh, my neighbors say that Jesus had brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church teaches that he wasn't. It says in the Bible that Jesus had brothers and sisters. How, how do I respond? Well, once again, going with literalism, remember, we as Catholics, we put great effort into studying what does the Greek original language say or the Hebrew. And what it says is that Jesus had a Delphos, 
And what Adelphos is, it's all over the Bible. Adelphos is not siblings. Siblings, we means we're blood relatives. But like, so let's say, let's say, Joni, I love you. You are like a sister to me. She's Adelphos. So Adelphos could be anybody in my circle of love. Cousins, could be brothers and sisters. Cousins, Joni, uh, second cousins. It doesn't mean siblings. So it says Jesus had Adelphos. Or early Christians would call each other brothers and sisters, not siblings, Adelphos. So uh, yeah, we take the word serious. And also, remember Jesus on the cross, um, uh, he does this weird thing where he says, behold your mother. He legally adopts, it's a Roman way. You, if you're an only child, when you die, you can legally adopt your mother to somebody else for them to take care of. So when he's on the cross, his last act is to legally adopt his mother to the apostles. So she is the mother of the church. You can't do that legally if she had other children. Um, so anyhow, um, we'd say, no, we take the original words really serious. Um, do I have time for another question? Oh, okay, we're out of time. So please stand, but start to ask questions. Why do we do this? It's a good thing to increase your faith. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.